All right. We've been going through Samuel's life, the life of Samuel in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. And we made it to a story that I think a lot of you will say, I know this story. You don't have to preach on this. I could preach on this. David and Goliath. Who knows this story and feels like I could preach on this story? Why are you telling this story? Yeah, okay, everybody. Yeah, it's pretty common uh, in children's literature. And growing up, we are taught that little guys can do big things too. And recently, a guy named Malcolm Gladwell came out with a book called David and Goliath. And his take was that David was stronger than Goliath and had more going for him than we could think. And I think he's sort of right, but he really, really still missed the main point. And I think so often in our little storybooks, we miss the main point. Because God is saying something so much more in 1 Samuel 17 than little guys can do big things too. A lot more going on here. We've been going through the book of Samuel for, I don't know, like four months now. And I want to repeat some of this stuff because it is so important for you to know what happened before David and Goliath happened in order to understand what is actually happening during this battle with David and Goliath. All right, so we're going to go back all the way to the beginning of 1 Samuel and move forward. So we're introduced right away to Samuel, not right away, he sees mom first, but Samuel comes up and he's born miraculously because Hannah could not get pregnant and finally did. And when he was a boy, he was called by God in the middle of the night during a time when people did not hear from God. And he was called and given a prophecy that came true. And he grew up and he served as a priest. First as a priest, the one who interceded for Israel. Second, he became a judge. So he was not only interceding and being the one who went between the people and God, but he was the judge, the ruler, the leader. The closest thing to, I guess, a king that they could have had at the time. But God was king. So he was God's go-to guy. And then we have him as a prophet because he delivered the word of the Lord to the people of Israel over and over and over again. So Samuel... We've been studying him. He's a a cool guy. Lots of stuff happened with him. But it wasn't just Samuel in 1 Samuel. We met the Philistines. And the Philistines were a constant threat. It says from the north, I was told it's from the west this morning, sorry. Uh, A constant threat who were subdued by the Lord while Samuel ruled. So the Philistines were constantly coming in and trying to invade Israel. But while Samuel was judge they were not able to be successful. And now the Philistines, you have to understand something about them. They had a monopoly on iron production and bronze production. They came into Israel and destroyed all the blacksmiths. So Israel could not produce their own weapons or their own armor. Israel had to go to the Philistines to get this stuff. And when you have to go to your enemy to get your weapons, you don't get a lot of those. And we're told that only Saul, King Saul, and Jonathan, his son, had weapons at one point. They were the only two people in the whole country who had swords. It's a big deal. Finally, we have the people of Israel as a whole. Israel was freaked out by the Philistines. And I could understand why, given the size of the threat. Even though... The Lord had held them off under the rule of Samuel. They, they were scared. And they, actually, before Samuel came into power, 
They tried to manipulate God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of God's presence. They brought the symbol of God's presence into battle thinking, hey, if we bring this box along with us, then we'll win. Well, the Philistines stole the box. It didn't go so well. So Israel has this history of trying to manipulate God, and eventually they've rejected God as their king by demanding of Samuel a king after Samuel is growing old and would no longer be the judge anymore. So... Going to chapter 8, God gives them a king, Saul. And Saul, we find out, is taller than anybody else by a head. And he's hot, as Jesse likes to say. Tall man. Uh, back then, people were probably about five feet tall, and I'm 5'6". So if a five-foot-tall person's about here, he's probably my height, which is kind of funny. Um, but he, if he was standing around a bunch of people, his head stuck up above theirs, and he just looked like the king, right? Somebody whose stature is so strong and tall. He, they said, this is the king. Of course this is the king. And God made Saul the king in order to deliver Israel from the Philistines. It says that explicitly. He is going to be king to, to deliver the people from the threat of the Philistines. But more than that, the king of Israel was called to be a man who will be faithful to the law. If you looked at Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 19, it says about this about the king. When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. So he is supposed to write down word for word the first five books of the Old Testament for himself so he knows it. This is like punishment in third grade, right? Like copying down something over and over and over again. But he is supposed to do that so that he would learn it for himself. And it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law, of this law and these decrees. The purpose of this is so that he would revere the Lord his God and follow him first, following carefully all the words of his law. And at first, it seems like Saul is a good king. He is successful in holding off the Ammonites over the city of Jabesh. The spirit of the Lord actually comes on him, and he is able to go in and get them all out of there. But, I don't know how long, but it's not long before we get to chapter 13, and we have the Philistines coming in again, and Samuel has to rebuke Saul because Saul, in fear, acted as priest and offered a burnt offering. This is something only the priest should do. No one else is allowed to intercede for Israel in this way unless you're in the line of the priests. This is a bad thing. So Samuel comes in and rebukes Saul. Strike one. Next, while Jonathan is attacking the Philistines, Saul, in fear, says whoever eats today is cursed and will die. Jonathan is busy attacking the Philistines all by himself with his sword bearer armor bearer, and he doesn't hear this curse and eats some honey, and Saul says, you're going to die. And it wasn't until the Israelites stepped in and said, you can't kill him over this, that he lived. But this is, this is not good. Saul's freaking out. Strike two. Finally, in 15, Samuel brings Saul the message from the Lord that he has been rejected as king because he did not obey the Lord and just totally destroying the Amalekites. And Samuel has to finish off Saul's work by killing King Agag. And he says these words. 
Verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It wasn't so much that he, because he didn't kill all these people, it was because he rejected the word of the Lord. Saul has no respect for God. He has no fear of the Lord. This is one of the first things a king should be do and have, and he had none. So he is rejected as king. And that's where we get to last week when Samuel goes to Bethlehem and finds the house of Jesse. And God says, go into this house. There are eight sons here, and one of them is the next king. And he meets the first one, the eldest son, Eliab, and he thinks, hey, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He must have been good looking. He must have been impressive and strong and tall. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Something was wrong with Eliab's heart. And they go through every son, and it's not the one, not the one, not the one, not the one, not the, I lost count. Seven sons, and finally he's like, do you have any more? Because I was told to come here. And they're like, oh yeah, there's that one in the field, uh, David. Oh, can you go get him? And he brings David forward, and the Lord says, this is my king. David, he's the youngest son. He's a shepherd boy. And good looking again. Hot, (laughs) according to Jesse. (laughs) What did David have that made him the next king of Israel? He was young. People put him at 15, 16, a young man, sort of a boy, sort of a man, Is David really the best choice for king? Did Samuel hear the Lord correctly? This is where we come to when we get to the story of David and Goliath. And that's chapter 17. And it's interesting because chapter 17, it comes in and it reads as though we've never heard of David before. You're, You're reintroduced to Jesse and to his family. And it's like a, it's like a close up, I think of what happened before in, in, in 16. Um, actually, in 16, we didn't go through this. Let me preface this. We see that David actually did serve under Saul for a time and eventually became an armor bearer for him. And then it's weird because then we come to 17 and we're reintroduced to David all over again and he's never served in the military. Saul doesn't seem to know who he is. So what's going on here? I believe that you can stick 17 into 16. Like, you know, 17 kind of fits in. It's a close-up of something that happened in that time period. Um, And it was written kind of like Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. We have this poetic telling of creation in chapter 1. And then chapter 2, you have a close-up of the creation of humanity. This is very similar to that. So I don't think it's, some people make a big deal out of this and say, oh, it's, it's out of order and nobody seems to know what's going on. I don't, I don't think it's quite that complicated. But so we have this second introduction to David. And as we read through this chapter, and as we read through, we're not going to read all of it because there's 58 verses and that would take forever. But I want you to notice some things. Notice how he is different from the Israelites, different from Saul. And specifically notice the words that he says. Okay? So notice his words, especially when he says more than one sentence at a time. All right. We're going to move into the, where we are. All right. 
So in chapter 17, we're introduced to a battle that's happening between the Philistines and the Israelites at the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines are there with all of their armor, and the Israelites are there with none of their armor. And we have a scene where all of a sudden, in the midst of the Philistines, comes a man who is said to be nine feet tall. Scripture says he is nine feet tall. Goliath. Do you believe this is possible? That a man could be nine feet tall? A lot of people don't. But he was from the line of Anakim. And they are described in other documents from back then as being gigantic in stature. And actually, a 13th century Egyptian letter described fierce warriors from Canaan, the land where Israel was, who were seven to nine feet tall. So there's descriptions from back then of people this size. And I think people have actually dug up people of this size, their skeletons. But let me give you a picture of somebody who is nine feet tall. This is Robert Wadlow. He was born in 1918, um, and he died at 22 because he had an infection in his foot. But when he was 22 years old, he was still growing at 8 feet 11 inches tall. His growth hormone just didn't, it was kind of overactive, just a little bit. It didn't stop. That's his father next to him who was 5 feet 11. This is a big guy. He wasn't done growing, and he died because of an infection. Imagine if he would have kept living, how big he would have gotten. And, yeah, he was a nice guy. He was called the Gentle Giant. But we also know of another guy who was pretty big, recent history, Andre the Giant. He was seven feet, five inches tall. All right, so hardly nine feet tall. But look at how big he is next to this boxer. I don't know why that guy is smiling, because it looks like he's about to rip his head off. <laughs> Impressive size. So Goliath comes out, and he's nine feet tall. But not only that, he is decked out in armor. And his armor is completely bronze. He has a bronze helmet on his head and a bronze coat of arms and bronze shin guards and a bronze sword that was five feet long, I believe. And then also he had another sword that was his iron on the tip of it. And iron was very rare back then. And that sword weighed 15 pounds. So his armor was 150 pounds not gold, bronze, glittering in the sunlight. Nine feet tall man. This is a huge, intimidating guy. And he comes out and he challenges Israel to one-on-one -on -one combat. You can go to the next slide. One-on-one um, -on -one combat. Back then, one-on-one -on -one combat was made or used so that there would be less loss of life in military battles. Makes sense, right? Also... It was used because each person on this one-on-one -on -one fighting, each person represented the God of their people. So whoever won this battle, it's like saying this God is greater than the other God. And here we have a nine-foot-tall man who's representing his God. That's pretty scary if you don't know who God is. And the Israelites didn't seem to. So let's read what Goliath actually says. We're going to go to verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come, up and come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I, if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 16 says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. 40 days. In the Bible, 40 typically is a time of testing. 40 years, 40 days. Israel is being tested. Will someone stand up and say, hey, God's better. God's bigger. We can fight for God. God will come through for us. Not only can we fight for God, but God is greater than this band, than this other God. Now, if you are remembering the height of these people, who was the tallest? Saul. Saul. Sorry, tallest of Israel. I'm sorry. Goliath was obviously the tallest. (sighs) Tired and hot. Okay. So Saul, apologize, he was, you know, probably five feet six, five feet eight. And about six or eight inches taller than everybody else in Israel. Wouldn't it make sense that the tallest man should fight the tallest man? And wouldn't it make more sense that the king of Israel would stand up for his people? But instead, Saul offers a reward. And he says anybody who will fight this man and win will have wealth. I will give him one of my daughters as his bride. And he will not have to pay taxes. It's in verse 25. You can look it up. (laughs) And they all talked about it every day. They're like, will you fight him? Yeah, I'll fight him. Oh, no, I'm not going to fight him. Are you crazy? And they went back and forth for 40 days. And no one stepped forward. They were all dismayed and terrified of Goliath. And here we have David come on the scene. Now, David was not in the military at this time. He was still a shepherd boy. And his father would send him out to the, to the battle to bring food and supplies for the other three sons who were fighting. And here we are in verse 20, and, and David is coming on the scene. And it says, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its p- battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Every soldier is running away in fear. And David asked the man, the men standing near him, verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what he had been saying. You will have wealth, a bride, and no taxes. And they told him this will be done for the man who kills him. I don't think they understood his question. I don't think David was really concerned about what's going to be done for this man. Let's look at his words, this first speech of his again. He says, what will be done for the man who removes this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this Philistine who is against God who should say, I am here to challenge the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is that he should do this? When Eliab, verse 28, when Eliab, the oldest son who was passed over because his heart was not pure, David's older brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger and asked him, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. No, what have I done, said David. Can I even speak? This is such typical sibling rivalry. <laughs> Come on. So then David turned away to someone else. He's going to talk to somebody else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. Now this is interesting. Because now we have David and Saul face to face. We have the reigning king and we have the anointed king. The king who was rejected and the king who has God's heart. David said to Saul in verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. What is Saul seeing? He is seeing that David is small, young, has never fought before. And he's seeing that this Philistine has been a champion since he was young. But David said to Saul, and here we have our second, our second speech from David. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Yeah. <laughs> your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. He has defied the armies of the living God. David has seen what God has done for him in the past. He knows that he did not beat the lion and the bear on his own. He did it because the Lord was with him, the living God. This apparently has convinced Saul to let him go, even though he didn't think he was big enough for it. He says, go and the Lord be with you. 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on his head, a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened them on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. So David is dressed up to look like the king. Interesting. But he says, I cannot go in these. I cannot go in Saul's tunic. I cannot go in Saul's way, some commentators said. I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. What do you think of when you think of a sling? A slingshot. Like a kid's toy, right? Yeah. Pull it back. Let it go. Woo! <laughs> not much power, right? Well, that's not exactly what, thing, what he had. 
David's sling looked like this. Uh, it had a pouch and two strings attached to it, and the pouch was for the stones. And a slinger, so a slinger would, was a regular military figure back then. A slinger would spin this pouch over his head six or seven times per second, really fast. And then he would whip that stone out. And these stones were not normal stones. They were similar in size to a baseball and were twice as heavy as our stones that we have around here. Did anybody see the video of the pitcher who hit a bird with a baseball several years ago? That bird did not make it. These rocks come flying out of the slings at at least 100 miles an hour. Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote that book I mentioned about David and Goliath, said they actually come out of the stone at the speed of a bullet from a 45-millimeter handgun. I've never heard that speed before, but the point is it's impressively fast and powerful. This is a weapon. This is something that Goliath actually was not expecting. So, verse 41. David comes out in his own clothes with his slingshot. And meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. And he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He's offended. They have not brought somebody who could actually fight him. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Here we have David's final speech. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you to the this day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag, taking out the stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines, stunned, saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and, to the, to, and the gates of Ekron. He chased them out of their land. 57. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him. Abner is the commander of the army. He took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? In other words, where did you come from? Saul asked him, and David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. That's the story of David Goliath. 
David saw things differently. If you're paying attention to the speeches like I asked you to, he saw a few things differently than the Israelites. The Israelites ran away, were terrified of Goliath, seemed to have no faith that God would come through for him. Saul was no different than the rest of his people. But David saw who God is. He saw that God is living. He used the title living God. This was a rare title for God at this point in the Bible. And he saw that he was powerful. He saw that God could do this. This was not something that was above God. God was living and powerful and he could do this. So he saw who God was. And he saw what God had done for him. He saw how God had already rescued him. And he said, you know what? God can do that again. If the Israelites had been paying attention, they would have known that God had already done stuff like this for them. They would have known that God could do stuff like this for them. But they did not see this. David saw it. And because David had a different perspective and a fear of God, and he knew what God was capable of, he was more apt to be king of Israel than Saul. His heart was lined up with God's. He was the true king. Not only this, but we know from scripture that David wrote a lot of the Psalms. David was constantly praising the Lord. He was worshiping the Lord. He was in God's presence. He knew God. And he knew what he could do. And he was close to him. He was a man after God's own heart. He stepped up when it was most necessary and was the agent of God's power. Delivered the people from the Philistines, which is what the king was supposed to do in the first place. We need eyes like David. Yes? I don't know about you, but it's hard to see God this way. I think it's hard to see God this way. I don't know how many of us would be running and fleeing from Goliath. I'm afraid that I would have been one of them. But David saw God. And how did he see God? How did he see him? I believe he practiced seeing God. He practiced by noticing what God had done. And he focused on him in prayer and worship and reading scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4.18, in the context of suffering in this body and in this world, Paul wrote this. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is seen? Goliath, nine feet tall man with 150 pounds of armor. He was gone like that. He was temporary. What is unseen, the Lord God Almighty, he is eternal. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. If we're struggling to see God, to really know what he's doing and see his fruit around us, I wonder how much we're actually trying how much time, how much attention we're actually giving to God. I know that there are times where God seems silent or seems not present. And I'm not talking about those times where God removes his sense of his presence for a purpose so that we would avidly seek him more. And the faithful 
who experience those times do seek him, and they are faithful. So I'm not talking about those times when we are trying to see God and we can't see him. I'm talking about those times when we're complaining because we can't see God, but we have not prayed to him. We have not read scripture. We have not spent time with him or saw him at all. We have to practice seeing God. And you know what? It's common that we have questions about God. I am not against questions about God. I am not saying that you can't ask questions or you can't struggle in your faith. I think questions are good. One of our values here at SCUMD is to ask questions while seeking truth. I have to say, I hear people saying, I'm asking questions a lot. I don't know. I don't know. But it's almost done in a matter that's kind of flippant. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I believe. I have questions. Well, I don't think you have questions because you're not asking them. You're not actually seeking the answers to these questions. And it's so frustrating. And I realized why I was frustrated with this week. Because I believe your souls are at stake, you guys. Ask the questions. The word of the Lord has answers. And if you don't know where to go in scripture, start looking around. Because there are people who have studied. And there are people who have had the same questions as you. You are not the only one with these questions. Other people have asked the questions. Ask questions. And I'm not saying this as somebody who's never questioned before. I think sometimes people think, oh, well, she's a pastor. She's on staff of the church. What does she know? She's got it all figured out. Yeah, right. (laughs) This last fall, I had questions that stumped me more than ever before. And I was stunned that I was having these questions because it wasn't just questions about certain attributes of God or something, but it was really about, does God actually exist? Is he real? And I would drive around looking at the world and saying, is this all that there is? And it was so horrible. I felt so hopeless at times. I heard people on the radio, and I listen to NPR a lot because I like their programs, and I think they do a good job with some stories and things, but man, they are atheists. And they think Christians are just kind of cute at best. And I just thought, man, does anybody believe this? Are they right? Does evolution really solve every problem? It was hard. And then at the holidays, we're there with my family. And my family is mostly Christian or almost all Christian, except for my brother-in-law, who's an atheist. And there's this, this little conversation popped up about creation and there was something about the way that my family was talking about creation and evolution that made them look really foolish and I hate to say that but it's true and I just knew that they looked foolish in the eyes of my brother-in-law and I was ashamed and then the third thing that was going on was I was not spending time in the word I confess it and I was not praying as much as I should have been So I was weak. I did not have my eyes fixed on Jesus. So my faith in the Lord that he even existed was at its all-time low. 
And it wasn't until I went away on a weekend with a bunch of Christian women who sought after God and who asked God to reveal their hearts to them and asked God to come in and heal them. It wasn't until that weekend that I realized that all of this was going on. And I repented and said, Lord, I'm sorry, and I'm going to pursue you. And I started doing that again. And my eyes were opened, and things changed, and I started to see in ways that I hadn't for a long time. Because we need to practice seeing. We need to actually practice seeing in order to be able to see. And did you know that your eyes actually need to practice seeing? When you're born, your eyes can't really see. Everything's just kind of lights and haze. And people who are born, there are babies that are born with cataracts in their eyes. And you know what a cataract is? It's, I, didn't, I had a misunderstanding of this. It's actually a cloudy lens. So their lens is clouded over, and then the light can't come in. So the eyes can't work. So everything else about the eye is fine, but the, the light can't come in. So there are children who are born blind, but this can be fixed if the lens is replaced with an artificial one. There's a man named Arthur Zadjok, weird name, I don't know how to say it. He wrote a book in the 90s called Catching the Light, The Entwined History of Light and Mind. And he talked about a surgery in 1910 that happened with an eight-year-old boy who had been blind because of cataracts. They did surgery on the boy, and the boy's eyes were healed physically, and they removed the bandages and waved their hands in front of the boy, expecting him to be able to see. And they asked him what he saw. And he said, I don't know. What he saw was only varying brightness, lights, only a little bit. He didn't know what it was. But when he grabbed the hand, he's like, it's moving. And he felt like, maybe I know what it is. It's moving. He didn't know it was a hand. He could feel it move, but he still needed, lab needed laboriously to learn to see it move. Light and eyes were not enough to grant him sight, said this author. And he continues on, the sober truth remains that vision requires far more than a functioning physical organ. Without an inner light, without a formative visual imagination, we are blind. I think the same is true for us with God. If we don't know what we're looking for, if we don't know who God is, we're not going to be able to see him. If we're not seeking God and training our eyes on him, fixing our eyes on him, as these scriptures say, we are not going to see him. We have to learn to see spiritually. It takes discipline. It takes focus. And there are some simple things that we can do in order to see God. We can see God in scripture. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It is living and acted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves in this to help us understand it. Jesus said those words. The Holy Spirit is moving in this to pierce our hearts towards him. The Holy Spirit works in scripture. It is living in action. Spend time in the word. I don't care if you're meditating on it, if you're reading the Bible through the year. I don't care if you're reading it, a, um, what's it called? A, a, what the heck, a book that tells you about it. <laughs> I don't care what you're reading. Just be in the word, guys. <laughs> Memorize it. Learn it. We see God in scripture. We can see God through prayer. And this is not sitting down and taking two hours in the morning to pray. You don't have to do that. Just start praying. Pray through the day. There are simple prayers that you can do called breath prayers. One for me last year was the Lord is near. Just breathe in. 
the Lord is near. Or you can say, come, Lord Jesus. Pray when you need him. Pray when you see the sunrise. Pray whenever. Just be praying, guys. And we can see God in our circumstances. And this is a hard one. Because sometimes our circumstances are not so great. Tim and I were talking this week about this, and, and he said, you know, there are, so often I look around the world and I just think, man, this is hopeless. This is a hopeless place. With all the death and hate and disease. But with God, there is healing. With God, there is hope. With God, there is life. God can do anything. And he is there in the midst of our circumstances, no matter what they are. And if you're having trouble seeing them, start asking somebody else to help you see them. If you're having trouble seeing him, start seeking God himself and ask him, where are you in these circumstances? And it might take months until he answers these questions. But you have to pursue him in that. Finally, I believe that we can see God in our stories. I love that we have story night and story morning here where we tell each other our stories. We're encouraged, right? (laughs) Anytime we come away from one of those services, it's like, yes, God is moving. God is living. He is active, just like David said he was. We can see God in other people's lives, and we can see God in what he does for us. And I have a story for you tonight. It's really little. You know, this is one of those stories that's kind of like, was that God? I don't know. I believe it was God, and I'll tell you why. Okay, this last spring, our faucet broke in our kitchen sink. And, you know, not really a big deal, except for the water wouldn't turn off. (laughs) Just water pouring out of the faucet. And I was like, oh, my goodness, we've got to replace this. We turned all the water off in the house. We got a new faucet. Um, Tim took off the old faucet, and the ancient pipe broke. 1939 pipe broke. And we were like, oh, my word. What are we going to do? Are we going to have to rip open the wall in order to replace the pipe that is broken? Is this going to cost us thousands of dollars? So we had a friend of ours come over who is a plumber, and he sat down and started looking. Not sat down. He sat there, stood there, and looked at it. And he worked on it for at least 40 minutes. And I came up to him, and I was like, so how's it going? Are you going to be able to fix this? And he said, I don't think so. I think this is shot. I can't get this to work. And I was like, oh, shoot. Started making plans to just remodel the kitchen because if we're going to take out the faucet, we might as well do the whole thing. Which we can't afford that. Anyway, I walked away and I heard this little something back here. I swear I was on the right side in the back of my head and it said, ask me. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So I said, Lord, can you fix this? Will you fix this? Can you make it work? I really don't want to do a kitchen remodel right now. And I think that's about all I said. And I walked away, and 10 minutes later, I came back, and he was attaching the faucet to the broken pipe, and it was working. And I was like, oh, (laughs) God did that. He answered that prayer. He asked me to pray, and I did, and he did that. Tim said that he said that our friend said that he was just lucky, and I'm like, I don't think so. That kind of thing doesn't happen with luck. The Lord does stuff. The Lord is living. He is active. I pray that we can start seeing with the same eyes that David saw, seeing him as greater than our circumstances, 
as the God, the Lord Almighty. Let me pray for us. Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you that these people are still here because it is so hot. (laughs) And they're awake. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with us. I know that you are. I pray that you give us eyes to see you. I pray that you would help us to see you because we need your help. And I pray that we would that we would seek you, God. That we would ask the questions that we have. That we would open your word and read it. That we would pray to you. And that you would help us to understand who you are and what you do. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now, as we gather to worship you with a few more songs, that you would teach us a few of these things. And that you bring us to yourself. Christ's name, amen.